Amen. And then verse 13, please, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And with those two verses now highlighted for us in our minds, let's seek the Lord again. Heavenly Father, the hour has come for the preaching of thy word. And the need of the hour is for the preacher to know the powerful and the gracious infilling of the Spirit of God. We're always conscious, Lord, when we stand in a pulpit like this, that without thee we can do nothing. I have no doubt, Lord, we could no doubt put an outward show. We could get through a meeting. But we're very conscious that anything that will be of any spiritual worth must be wrought by thyself. And therefore we pray that thy word might have free course and be glorified. And give us, Lord, even the soul winner's joy at the end of the meeting. Some soul seeking the Lord while he is to be found. Hear and answer prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The opening salutation of the chapter found there in verse 1 shows that things were not healthy in the churches that were in Galatia. He said to them, O foolish Galatians. This was a situation that had come about through their own doing. And Paul viewed the church here, or the people here, as being fools. And he went as far as to address them as such. There is a little verse that speaks over in the book of Titus. There comes a time when the the pastor of the church, the preacher, needs to rebuke some people sharply. Not only rebuke them, but do it sharply, that they might be sound in the faith. The problem here is is that they had been bewitched. He asks the question here, but it's rhetorical. Who hath bewitched you? And we read from the opening chapter, chapter 1, that they had been bewitched. They had been fooled by false teachers, people who had doubtless crept in unawares, as we read in Jude. They had got quietly into the congregation and then done their evil work, and they led them away from the gospel of Christ, effectively to embrace what the apostle described bluntly as being another gospel. And I suppose that Paul, writing here to this church at Galatia, It was a little bit like having to tell someone that they have been scammed. We've ever been warned about the scammers, aren't we? You get the police every now and again making statements and running adverts and so on. Uh, Because there are scammers out there, they pry on vulnerable people. And they manage to uh, get these people in their folly, it has to be said, to give away their bank details. If somebody asks you for your bank details, you make sure you know who it is. Then they ask you for what we call their PIN number, their personal identity number, usually four figures. And then they ask for your passwords. And that gets you into all the different accounts that you have. And other security details. 
And it must be an awful thing. I've never had to do it, but it must be an awful thing to have to go to someone, perhaps an older person, and to tell them, your bank account has been cleared. Your nest egg is gone. Your hard-earned money is now in the wallet and the account of someone else, and you have nothing left. And often, it's the fault of the person who gave out the details in the first place. About three or four years ago, there was a doctor down in Newcastle who gave out his details, and uh, he was robbed of about £40,000. It was a scam, and he was honest enough, and honest enough on the television to say that he had just been greedy. If it's too good to be true, if it sounds too good to be true, generally it is. It was all their own fault. And overall here then, this Galatian epistle is not a happy letter for people to write. To change the illustration perhaps by way of introduction still, we could say the Galatian boat is still, er, the Galatian boat is among the rocks It's in rocky waters, and it's Paul's job to bring it back into the safe waters once again. Now, maybe this idea this evening amazes you, because there are those, perhaps even here tonight for all I know, and you are of that opinion that all religious belief is legitimate in the sight of God, that when push comes to shove, It doesn't really matter where you hang your hat on the Lord's day. And the main thing that you look for, and yes, it is important, but the main thing, and perhaps the only thing that you look for, is that the adherent of that religion is sincere. Well, what might interest you, or it might astound you, that the New Testament apostles did not operate on that principle. They spoke about those who had the spirit of truth, but they also warned about those who had the spirit of error. And these men went as far as to expose false teachers and call them grievous wolves, grievous wolves who enter in and spare not the flock. But God has made light to shine out of the darkness before And here the Apostle Paul uses the occasion, which, as we have been saying, is a negative occasion, yet he uses it wonderfully to expound some positive truth. And I believe tonight that in these two verses, Paul expounds for us the very heart of the gospel. You will notice that there's a word that comes up in these two verses. Verses 10, and again in the verse 13, and that is the word curse. It's the word curse. The very word itself would send a shiver down our spines. And again, it shows the importance, the vitality of getting a proper biblical view of the gospel. On the gospel, and on a correct understanding of it, and a reception of it, they hangs the destiny of the immortal souls of us all. There's some things that we can afford, maybe not just to get quite right. And it doesn't matter if we're left or center, it doesn't make any great difference one way or another. But when it comes to the gospel, it's very important that we know we're off 
we speak. We have three main thoughts tonight that we want to expound in order to propagate the gospel message. The first thing that we have, number one, is this. We have the curse proclaimed. The curse proclaimed. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. It is worthwhile just thinking about this word curse so that we might uh, appreciate not only the solemnity of the word, but also our own danger. You will notice there in verse 10 that the, uh, the apostle is quoting from the Old Testament. He says, it is written. And when he says it is written, he's always referring back to the Old Testament. And there are various verses that explain that that man who does not keep the whole law of God, who is under the law, and if he does not keep it, he is under the curse. There are a number of verses that teach that. The idea in the original language, that would be the Hebrew then, is of fellification and execration. The idea is of extreme anger and repudiation and of total non-acceptance. A man who does not keep the whole of the law of God falls under the wrath and the anger and the curse of God. The Greek word, for Paul wrote in Greek, denotes total alienation from God. It's the same idea. And therefore, a more horrific scenario cannot be envisaged. I know that there are many people today who do not think of God very much, if indeed at all. There are others who might even deny that there is a God. More fools. These fools say in their heart, there is no God. But they are not in the ultimate sense without him, because he still shards blessings upon their head. And he sends the rain and the sunshine and the just and the unjust. The God in whose hand thy breath is. That's the language of Scripture. Thou hast not glorified. But to be totally alienated from God. And its ultimate and final sense is to be lost in hell forever. The Bible talks about those who will go out from the presence of the Lord. And although this word curse is a terrible word, yet it is also a most just one. And I know that because it is God himself who pronounces the curse. God who is absolutely holy. God who is absolutely just. God who is absolutely righteous. The principles there in the early part of the Bible shall not the judge of all the earth do right. It's a rhetorical question. It's not an open question. It's rhetorical. The answer is, yes, of course, he will always do right. There's never been an unjust judgment from God. There has never been a miscarriage of justice from God. The judge of all the earth does right. And I think that we have lost this concept of God. 
We have allowed false teachers, again, these men that sometimes we creep in unawares, they have put the scaffolding scaffolding around God and they have done a makeover. And when the scaffolding has been taken away, we do not have the God of the Bible anymore, but we have a God of man's own imagination. And man is worshipping a figment of his own imagination. But the God of the Bible, the God of the book in both Testaments is an entirely different proposition. His judgments are always pure and holy. None can ever lay anything against the charge, any charge against God's elect, because none can lay any charge against God himself. Who are cursed? It's those who are under the law of God. And that's us all. That's us all. And it's all simply on the ground that we are creatures of God. Creatures of God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We're in His universe and therefore we are subject by right as well as by fact to His sovereign rule. God isn't subject to human whims and human votes. Some say, you know, well, if you want to have God well and good, you have your God. You go to your church, go to your building that you've opened to what you call His glory. You worship Him if you want to worship Him. You sing hymns. You, you sell Bibles, pass them on. Have your religion well and good. But they say, it's not for me. But there can be no great revision. There's no great reset. God's throne cannot be moved, never mind replaced. And the laws that he has given, summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, are still binding on the human hearts of all his creatures. Someone says, I don't concern myself with these things. That might be so, but these things concern themselves with you. And when you have a law, Every law has a penalty. Every law has a penalty for those that will not keep the law. And the Bible's telling us there in verse 10, it could hardly be clearer, that the curse of God is on those who fail to keep the law 100%, 100% of the time. I want you to notice that little word, all, in there. Cursed is everyone that continueth not, verse 10, in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Sometimes the most important words are those with the fewest letters. Great doors can often swing in little hinges. The word if is a great example, if. And here's another. It's the word all. We can judge the greatness of the crime by the severity of the penalty that it carries. Here we are being called, as it's worded in Romans 11, to behold both the goodness and, and the severity of God. And both when they are viewed, do him credit and bring him glory. Oh, see what it is, therefore, to sin by the breaking of the law of God. God doesn't laugh it off. God doesn't laugh it off. God doesn't settle just for what he can get. It's the fool who mocks at sin. But God curses 
the soul who fails to keep his law. And this curse is an operation now on earth. It takes immediate effect. When we break the law of God, that curse, a curse comes upon us. The wrath of God, the Bible says, even now abides in every sinner that is out of Christ. The Bible says God is angry. He is angry with the wicked every day. And again, as we've mentioned earlier, that curse will see its full unfolding and severity in hell after death. You see, God is withholding his wrath from sinners today. The Bible says he is long-suffering. We would use the word patient. He is long-suffering and gracious because today is the day of salvation. But the door of mercy, the door of mercy for every man closes in death. The moment the eyes close for the last time, when the last labored breath is gone, the rattle is in the throat, the door of mercy is shut forever. And the full unleashed fury of God and the curse is released. And it knows no end. The Bible says of the wicked dead, these go away in the everlasting punishment. Here we have the curse proclaimed. But we come to verse 13, and we see here, secondly, we have the curse born. The curse born. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You see, maybe you're wondering tonight, well, is there no hope for the guilty? Are we not all guilty? Yes, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We notice here that the trial is past. The verdict and the judgment has been reached. The executioner is sharpening his axe. The curse can fall suddenly in this life or certainly in the life to come. But here's the good news. It's a gospel meeting, isn't it? It's a good news meeting. God himself, the judge, the jury, and the executioner has devised a way to lift the curse, not by denying it, not by compromising it, but by having another to bear it for us. And we might ask the question and wonder as to who could bear that awful load of the infinite guilt of infinite sin against God's holy law. And there was only one. Only one could undertake that great work and see it through. The hymn writer said, Is there anyone can help us who can give us sinner peace? When his heart is burdened down, with pain and woe we speak, who can speak the words of pardon that afford a sweet release, and whose blood can wash and make as white as snow. And of course, we can answer our own question. Yes, there's one. Yes, there's one. There's only one. The blessed, blessed Jesus, he's the one. You see, even before man fell in the garden, even before the curse was, was unleashed, God entered into a covenant with his Son. And this was a covenant that would lead to the redeeming of his people from their sins. 
one who would go spotless and sinless to the cross, one who would bear his soul to the curse of a sin-hating God on our behalf. Oh, this is a great truth. Is it not a substitution? The Son of God loved me, and he gave himself for me. This is blood atonement. The wrath must be borne. It cannot be dispensed with. God cannot deny himself. Justice must be served, and it must be satisfied before mercy can rejoice against it. Why do you think our Savior hanging on the cross, as the hymn writer said, in agony and blood, why did he cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was bearing our cursed hell for us. You see, when the wicked dead are sent to hell, they go with these words, Matthew 25, verse 41, and I will say to them that are on the left side of my father, depart from me, ye what? Depart from me, ye cursed. Those are the words that will forever ring in the ears of a man in hell. Depart from me, ye cursed. God spared not his own son. There were no favors done. The fullness of the divine wrath emptied itself upon him. The Bible says, Isaiah 53, it pleased, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He made his very soul an offering for sin. Death and the curse were in that cup. O Christ, it was full for thee. I'm aware this is a hated doctrine in some quarters. Cain hated it right from the very beginning of time. This is a doctrine that has never found acceptance with a carnal man. Cain refused the sacrifice of the lamb, and he tried to come his own way. And on to Cain and his offering, God had not respect. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, the curse of God hanging upon him. It's a cursed way to walk in the way of Cain. The modernist preacher hates it. Professor Davy, Presbyterian Church of a hundred years ago, said, doctrine of the blood atonement and imputation and other doctrines that we believe was just like the theory, the theory of transubstantiation, the blasphemy of the mass. Many a hymn book, many a hymn book has been purged, just like the night of the long knives of hymns, verses, whole hymns that have exalted the blood atonement of Christ. We started off with a hymn in the blood tonight, didn't we? Lord, through the blood of the Lamb that was slain, cleansing for me, cleansing for me. Oh, hell hates this great truth with an infernal hatred. It's the song of heaven tonight. If we could tune into heaven tonight and hear what they're singing, they're singing on to him who loved us and washed us in his own blood. It's a blessed song of the redeemed. And from this then we can clearly see thirdly not only the curse I proclaim not only the curse born, born by Christ, but the curse lifted. The curse lifted. You see, if you try and save yourself by keeping the law of God, how many times, maybe you said it yourself, believed it for a long time, but how many times have you heard it said, I try to do my best. I try to keep the commandments. 
I try to be a good neighbor. I try to be a respectable, a, a religious person. But you're going to signify fail. You're not going to make it. You're not going to get there. And this righteous curse is going to fall upon you. What makes you think that somehow keeping the law to some extent and some of the time is going to wipe out your past misdeeds? That's a strange teaching. It's not in the Word. It's in the Quran. Useless book, but it's not in God's Word. And what theory can we say? And what, what grounds can we say? If I do good, if I spent half of my life robbing banks and post offices and old people and beating them up, and then decided just to turn over a new leaf and start giving to charity, would that, would that satisfy the law, the judge, if they, if they caught up with me? What a nonsense that is. We're in absolutely no condition to chip in our tuppence worth. We can only sing with the hymn writer, Mercy has saved me. Mercy had saved me or else I must die. And mercy sent Christ to the cross. He paid the price in full. You say, why was the law given? It was given to show us our utter helplessness. The Spirit of God, when He convicts us of sin, shows us how far short and how great is our need of the mercy of God. And it's used to drive us to Christ, to plead for mercy and for grace. Paul gave here in verse 8 the great example of Abraham. And the whole crux of that argument there is this, that here was a man who was justified, justified, counted righteous. If you're counted righteous, you are beyond the curse. And he was justified by faith alone, without apart from the deeds of the law. You see, all charges are dropped when a man is justified because the law has got its pound of flesh. And when the law gets its pound of flesh, it backs off satisfied. And it was Mr. Toplady who wrote the words, he says, the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do my Saviour's obedience and blood hides all my transgressions from view. Are Christians still under the law, God's people? Well, we're not under its curse. Or we're no longer trying to use it as a way to get to heaven. We were looking to Christ. It's not our road to life. But we're under its guidance and its blessings as a rule of life. And when a man gets saved, God gives him a new heart. And the commandments of God to him are not grievous. The yoke is easy, the burden is light. And we run and delight in the law of God, but we're not trusting in it either to bring us to Christ or as the Galatians were starting to do, to keep us in Christ. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, holy lean in Jesus' name. The Lord Jesus on the cross has done something sufficient to save every last sinner. Note the reference there to the nations in verse 8. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached the gospel 
before on the Abraham, saying, And these shall all the nations, all the heathen, that's us. We're just a little island. World map. Look for us in this little, this little map. We're just a little island, aren't we? We're a little island, off a little island. But we're part of the nations. And there's something sufficient in that work of Christ in order that all who come might be saved. You see, from Abraham's seed, Christ has come, and he hath obtained a salvation sufficient to save all the guilty ones who come to him. Maybe you say, can I come to him? Yes, you can come to him. You're not cast you out. This isn't one of these exclusive clubs so like the old bars and discos and nightclubs with the bouncers in the door. And your face doesn't fit and run along before trouble happens. Jesus said him, him that cometh to me, fide, sinful, wicked, guilty, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Is there an unsaved one with us tonight? I ask you this, I challenge you tonight. Will you come? Will you come tonight? Why live? Why live under the curse of God? The righteous curse of God. There's no grounds of appeal. There's no higher court. Why abide under the curse of God? Treading water until the doors of hell are opened and you're put in when the greatest blessings of God are full and a free salvation lies tonight within your grasp. You know, just sitting, just sitting in the pew where you are, just you bow your head. Say, Lord, I'm the lawbreaker. The curse is mine. I fully deserve it. I'm the sinner. But tell him you're the sinner Jesus came to save. And call on his name, just in the quietness of your heart, and merciful to me, a sinner, that man went home justified, the Bible says, rather than the other. The old publican was still under the law. Lord, I've done this, that, and something else. Cursed man. He didn't do enough. He didn't do enough because you couldn't do enough. But the poor publican just bowed his head in the church quietly. said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And mercy there was great. And grace was free. May God draw you to himself. Let's bow our heads, please, for a moment of prayer. The meeting will soon be over. We've sung our three hymns. But if you're concerned about your soul, I would plead with you tonight, as a gospel preacher must do, don't miss out on the mercy of God. It's within your grasp tonight. You're in the right place on the right day listening to the right type of person, a gospel preacher. And this is your opportunity. And it would be a sad thing for you to miss it when you can come to him. If I come to Jesus, little children's hymn, he will make me glad. And he'll make you glad with the joy of his salvation. Heavenly Father, thank you for your help tonight in the preaching of the word. Thank you for the whole meeting. It was all conducive to the sinner coming to Christ. And we pray that if there's any unsaved among us in this gathering, 
or in the wider field through the internet, that wherever they are, whether it's in the pew, whether it's floored in their own home, that they'll call on the name of the Lord and seek and find the Lord and come to him. And Lord, such will rejoice forevermore. Part us now with your blessing and in your fear. Blessing off the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rest, remain, and abide with us all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. If you want to speak with me, you want to wait behind, I'm in no hurry away tonight, and I'll be happy to speak with you. Maybe clarify something. I'll be very happy to speak with you. God bless you.